We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So earlier this week, we came home from an event that we had at Cultivate to a crime scene. At least that's what it looked and felt like. There was blood all over our hallway, which was kind of alarming, right? What we found was coming from our dog, Millie. Now, backstory, we had found that Millie, when we leave the house, she was getting out somehow, and we didn't know how. So somehow what she was doing was squeezing through the gate to our backyard and getting out in the front yard and running around. We're going to say trying to find us, but really, like, the dog's neurotic. I have no idea what she's doing. I have no idea what she's trying to do. She's, she just keeps escaping for no reason. And so how did she squeeze through that gate? What she did was she chewed and chewed and chewed away at the wood until there was enough of a gap for her to push her body through. Where did this wood go? Well, it ended up on my bedroom carpet one morning because as she was trying to digest it and turn all these splinters into a log about this long, she threw it up one morning on our floor. And so I was thinking, we have to find a way to fix this gate so she can't get out, right? So I came and reinforced the gate and I put a piece of metal at the bottom there. Just a stainless steel sheet of metal flat up against the gate. Screwed it in there nice and tight. It was nice and flush. And I thought, she can't scratch away at this and she can't eat away at this, right? Problem solved. We had about a week with no problems. It was great. And then we came home to all this blood. What she had done is she chewed away at the wood just above the metal piece so that now there is a lip between the wood and the metal. Well, this is a thin sheet of steel, you guys. It's sharp. And now that it's not flush against something, as she's scratching at it and trying to chew at it, she's cutting herself up. And she continues trying to get out this way, even though it's cutting at her. So we come home to this crime scene, this bloody mess. Liam's petting Millie and trying to soothe her. Bethany and Cannon are trying to tend to her wounds and make sure that they're, they're bandaging them up. Jonas is going around cleaning the blood up off of the floor. And I'm thinking, who can we give this dog away to? <laughs> so we all were playing our part. We all had a role to fill, right? But that moment of walking into the house, you saw blood on the floor. You knew something's wrong, right? That's kind of what blood does. It, it sets off this alarm. Wait, this isn't right. Because blood's not supposed to be outside of a body. It should be on the inside, right? There's something wrong here. I remember when I was in kindergarten, my brothers and I were hopping the fence into our school campus so that we can go play Ditchem. And one of my brothers looked at me after we hopped the fence, and he's like, hey, dude, you're bleeding, like, really bad. I didn't even know. I didn't know that I had cut myself when I hopped the fence. And as soon as I looked down and I saw the blood, I started freaking out and crying. Right? It was the blood that alarmed me. It set off that trigger. Like, wait, this isn't right. That's not supposed to be coming out of me right now. It's supposed to get back in there, right? So one thing that blood does is it sets off that alarm. Something is not the way it should be right now. 
that part we can connect to with what the author of Hebrews is saying to his original audience centuries ago. But the second part about it, I think, is going to be a little harder for us. Not only does blood set off this alarm, hey, something's wrong, but what they had used blood for back then is much different than what we use it for. Jonas had to go around and clean up the blood because blood being on our floor, it's not clean, is it? What we're going to see is actually in this story, the Israelite people for centuries had a much different view of it. They would actually use blood to bring cleansing. They would use blood to wash, to clean something up. And so our author of Hebrews is calling back, this part that Eva just read for us, is calling back to a time when what they would do is they would use animal sacrifices for this blood. And what he does is he calls back to a a moment in Exodus 24. And he's been doing this for a while now. He's been reminding these people about, hey, you know your ancestors. You know your history. Do you remember when God used a man named Moses to rescue your ancestors out of slavery in Egypt, to bring them into a new land that he promised them where they could have freedom, where they could live life to the fullest? He's like, you guys, you know this story well. You remember that. Let me remind you about some of the things that they had to do during that time. Drop that. One of the things that they had to do is God came to them and he set up a way for how they can draw near to him. See, there's a problem in the ancient world that they understood. The problem is that God is holy and set apart and he's good and he's all powerful and he's up here. And humans, we don't always do things right. And we're not set apart and holy, we're common and, and sometimes filthy and dirty with the things that we do. And we're down here. And we can't bridge that gap. This was not just true for the Israelites who believed in Yahweh, the God of the Bible that we believe in now. This was true for every culture back then with their God, with their deity. They would all have temples. This was universal. Most of those temples were either built to look like a mountain or on top of a mountain because they were trying to climb their way up in a sense. They were trying to get to what's the closest place down here where we can get up there to these gods. There's a separation there. There's something wrong. God, the true God, from the very beginning of humans turning away from him though, from the very beginning of humans choosing to be separate from him, made a way in order for them to come back. If you remember all the way back in the story of the garden, when the humans rebel against God and they did the thing he asked them not to do, the one thing he asked them not to do, not to take for themselves this power to decide what's right and wrong, but to trust in him. When they did that, one of the things that happened for them is they immediately were flooded with shame and guilt, right? They recognized there's something wrong with me. And they were ashamed that they were naked too. Like, oh no, I'm I'm exposed and you can see me and I don't want that. I need to cover myself so you can't see the full me. This happened between the first two humans who came from one another and they, they were one and God made them two. And yet they were hiding from each other. They were hiding from God. So what does God do to cover them? 
physically. Do you guys remember? What does he give them for clothes? Does he go to the, the Gap? Do people still shop there? I don't know. Ross, that's where I shop. He, he gives them animal skins, right? What do you think had to have happened to those animals first in order to take their fur to cover the humans? They were a sacrifice, weren't they? They were a sacrifice, their lives given in order for the humans to be covered. Blood was spilled. There's something wrong. There's an indicator there's something wrong. And at the same time, what blood was also doing, though, was it was covering what was wrong. It was covering the shame and the guilt and the fear and the nakedness. And so what God does when he has Moses bring them out of slavery in Egypt thousands and thousands of years later is he's reminding them, hey, there is a way that you can draw near to me again, but it's going to cost something again because there's still something wrong. There's still something wrong in our relationship. You are still distant from me. Here's a way that you can draw near. And so God has them build this tabernacle, which is like the preview of what the temple would be one day, where the priests would operate out of. But at this time, they're, they're traveling in the wilderness, so it's a giant tent, right? And he has them build it in a way where he has them arrange furniture in it that would remind them of what the garden was like before blood was spilled. But in order for them to draw near, they had to spill blood again. And so they would actually come and they would make sacrifices, Now, we talked about last week how this was part of God making a covenant with his people, right? And if you remember, we said that word covenant, it just means it's it's the deepest form of promise between two people. And when you make this deep promise, what you're doing is you are joining your lives together. And so we talked about how a marriage is a good picture for us today of what a covenant is supposed to look like. Marriages don't always look that way today. But what it should look like It's not just a contract, but it's a deep commitment saying we're joining our lives together forever. But the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, right after the part you just read, he actually switches analogies there too. And he uses another way that you would have understood it. And he starts talking about wills. Like a will that you leave for when you die, right? So it's a form of a contract too, but it's also in a sense, it's, it's saying we're joined together and when I die, you will inherit now something that was mine. So when you leave a will for your kids or friends, for family members, loved ones, that's what you're saying. You're saying we were joined in our lives and now that I have died, my blood has gone from me, you stand to inherit something. And so he kind of switches these metaphors here and he starts talking about uh, when someone leaves a will, it doesn't come into effect until the death happens, does it? When someone leaves a will behind, you don't go and inherit the thing that they put in the will when they're still living. It's when the blood goes from the body that you now inherit it. I know, we're getting really morbid and and gross here with blood, guys. It's going to get worse because this is what he says right after that. In Hebrews 9, let's pick up in verse 18. So after explaining that, that the will's in effect when the person dies, he says, that is why, 
the first covenant, actually I'll read it from here because I have a different translation. That's why even the first covenant was not put into effect without the spilling of blood. This first agreement God made with his people when he rescued them out of slavery also happened through the spilling of blood. Moses first announced every commandment of the law to all the people. Then he took the blood of calves. He also took water, bright red wool, and branches of a hyssop plant. He sprinkled the scroll. This is what he wrote down what God said to him on the mountain on. He also sprinkled all of the people. Gross, right? I was thinking about what are some like, things I can do, some object lessons and visuals you can see. And I was like, I'm just going to splatter y'all with blood. I decided against it. I didn't think you would appreciate that. You're welcome. So he sprinkles all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the holy tent, that's the tabernacle that we just talked about, with blood. He also sprinkled everything that was used in worship there. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be made clean with blood. This is, again, the disconnect I was talking about, where we don't see blood the same way they did in their culture, right? We have to understand this is written to a different people in a different time, in a different place, and they had a different understanding of blood. And there's a big reason why we don't view blood this way anymore, which we'll get to hopefully at the end. But this is how they saw it. This was washing. Everything was made clean with blood. Without the spilling of blood, no one can be forgiven. What he's talking about right here, it comes from Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, God had rescued them, and then he calls Moses up to the mountain, and he tells him, this is how I want the people to live now. This is the best way for them to live. They're no longer slaves. The Pharaoh of Egypt is no longer ordering them how to live. I'm telling you now, here's a good way to live. Here's how you live free. And Moses goes down, and the people go, yep, we'll do it all. And so what they do is they start mixing our metaphors of marriage and a will, right? They of wedding and funeral. They have a ceremony to celebrate this union now between God and the people. And Moses, they, they said, I do. They said, we'll do all the things he said. And so Moses, he goes around and he gathers 12 stones and he sets up these altars out of the stones. And the stones are symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. So it represents all the people that God has just called. And then he gets them together and he tells them, hey, start getting these animals and we're going to make sacrifices. And the young men gather all these goats and bulls and calves and they start sacrificing them. And Moses goes and he takes half the blood from each animal and he's filling up these basins. So you already have blood spilling from the animals. And then he goes and he gathers half of the blood to set aside for something else. Like, he's, he's got a recipe going, right? Set half of that aside. We'll get to it later. And then they gather all the people together. I've never been to a wedding ceremony like this, you guys. All right, it's usually not like blood thrown on people. Do you guys remember that comedian in the 90s, was Gallagher, who would like smash the watermelons? I'm totally dating myself. Anybody over 20 in here know what I'm talking about? All right. So this is kind of what that was like, only they weren't given like a poncho to wear to cover themselves. So he calls everybody together and he reads what God had just told him up on the mountain. He wrote down on a scroll and he reads it to them. And then he dips his hand in the blood and he splatters the scroll. Then he starts splattering the people with it. 
and the stones that were set up. Earlier this week, I visited a friend of mine. He's an Anglican priest at a church in Sunny Slope. And I went to a prayer thing at his church building. And then we were in the like, kids' building, right? And I was able to walk into that room, no problem, and sit down and we talked and we laughed and we prayed with a group of people. And then he was like, hey, do you want to see the rest of the space? I said, yes. And so we walked over into their main sanctuary. And when you walk into that door, there's a basin right there of water that he dips his hands in to clean. And that's just, I mean, obviously he didn't like wash his whole hands with soap. He didn't like sing the ABCs to make sure he had enough time of lathering up and all that. He just dipped it in because symbolically it was representing cleansing. And I was like, I guess I should do that too, right? And so I was really glad he doesn't use blood to do that. This is what they're doing. He's dipping in the blood and splattering it to clean. Now, Moses does this at this point, but they don't have a tabernacle just yet, which is weird because the author of Hebrews in chapter nine says, Moses does this and then also he splatters the tabernacle. What he's doing is he's skipping forward in the story for them. Because this is Exodus 24, he's quoting. The tabernacle doesn't come till Exodus 40. And that's the end of that book. Then you immediately go to the next book, which is Leviticus, and it starts talking about what they did in the tabernacle. So what what happens in the tabernacle is this moment in Exodus 24, where Moses is getting blood on everybody, gets recreated every single year by the priests afterward. Moses' brother Aaron and his sons. Every single year. It was called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means to wash and cover you, to make you clean. It's a a purification, but it happens through sacrifice. It happens through blood. And so every year, and you can find this in Leviticus 16, every year the high priest would be able to go in to this temple and they would be able to make these sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now here's the thing. The blood wasn't just covering your moral faults, right? That's what we think of when we think of sin, don't we? When we think of our sins, when the church often talks about sins, we think of like, I lied. I stole that candy bar when I was eight years old. Like, I, I'm angry. I hit my brother. I cheated. I, right? We think of these moral failures, and that certainly is part of it. It also was a ritual cleansing of just the reality that people were separate from God. Not from anything wrong. Sometimes it was from having dirty feet. Sometimes it was from being pregnant as a female. Guess what? That's a good thing. God created it to be that way, right? But the reality that they understood in their day was we as humans are separate from God. And because of just the normal day-to-day stuff that we touch and do and experience, we aren't clean to enter into God's presence. And oddly, the thing that made them clean to enter into his presence was blood. 
Now they would have to do this over and over and over again every year. Now why blood? Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 17. So chapter 16 tells you all about the day of atonement, how this happened every single year. Chapter 17 gives us a little clue into why. Leviticus 17, 11 says this, the life of each creature is in its what? Blood. That's why it seems so wrong when you see blood outside of a body. You need that to live, right? The life of every living being, every living creature, whether it's my dog who cut herself or these calves that were being sacrificed in Exodus 24 or us in this room right now, the life of every creature is in its blood. So God says, I have given you the blood, the life of animals to pay for your sin on the altar. Life for life. He says, blood is life. That is why blood pays for your sin. We know that when we rebel against God, the result of that is death. And think about that just logically. If God is the one who gives life to all things and you turn away from and say, I don't need you, life giver, you're choosing death. God says, I don't want that for you. Let me put another death in your place so that now you can experience life. This is why blood washes and cleanses the death stain that is on us. We are stained with death and blood comes and washes that away so that we could have life. This would happen every year because why? They would keep sinning. They would keep rebelling. They would keep choosing to do things in their own way rather than in God's ways. We don't understand blood being cleansing in our culture anymore. And don't worry, I will never make you dip your hand in a basin of blood or sprinkle it on you. That's not what we're gonna do. But what we do understand in this room and in our culture is not being clean, don't we? I don't just mean physically, like you got some mud on you and you got to take a shower. I mean, every single one of us in here understands within our spirit not being clean. We understand not being holy, not being perfect, not being right not being good. We understand that at times, even when we think we know what's good, sometimes we're wrong. We understand that at times, even when we know what's good for sure, we still choose to do opposite. We still choose to do what is not good. And I think if I were to say the phrase, every one of us in here has felt dirty, I think you would know what I mean by that, by that analogy that I'm not just talking about having mud on your toes, but that we all have experienced feeling dirty in our soul, haven't we? And what God is setting up for his people, for this culture thousands of years ago, across the other side of the world, is what God still offers to us today, except it's better. What he offered them back then was a preview It was a foreshadow. It was, let me show you what I'm going to do about this problem. There is a way for you to be washed so that you could have life. And so they would practice this. They would put it into practice and do it over and over and over again until finally 
there was blood that would come that would do this once and for all. And so finally, there would be blood that would wash away the death stain for all of us once and for all. This is the reason why we don't have the same connection with blood as cleansing that the ancient world did because it has already been fulfilled and accomplished and finished on our behalf long before you and I were born into this world. And the author of Hebrews talks about this. He says that that first covenant was inaugurated with blood. This covenant is no different, but it's the blood of a better. No longer the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but the blood of God himself becoming man. When the blood of the one who gives life, remember life is in the blood, is spilled and covers you, you are washed eternally because he's the one who created life and he gives his own for you. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter one, verse five. If you thought Leviticus was weird, we're going to Revelation, right? In Revelation chapter one, verse five, this is speaking of Jesus. Now listen, the author of this letter, John, he's just writing to the churches and he's saying, this letter, it doesn't just come from me on my behalf. It also comes from Jesus, our King. He says, may grace and peace come to you from Jesus Christ. What Jesus gives witness to can always be trusted. He was the first to rise from the dead. What does that mean except for that he faced death, right? In order for him to rise from the dead, he had to first go through it, and he did by spilling his blood for us. Then he goes on to say this. He rules over the kings of the earth. Give glory and power to the one who loves us. He has set us free from our sins by doing what? Pouring out his blood for us. Now, if you look at the original Greek language there, this is a great translation. There's another option too of how they could have translated this. And some of your versions might have this. Not only has he set us free from pouring out his blood for us, but it could also be translated, he has washed us. He has made us clean by pouring out his blood for us. The blood that needs to be spilled, the lifeblood that needs to be covered on each of us that gives us life forever has already been spilled. And you don't have to go through a ritual and go paint it on yourself or have it splattered on you, okay? You don't have to go through any type of ritual and routine to make sure that you are good. All you need to do is accept it like a will. If I leave a will behind for my children and I die, they now have an inheritance from me. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to perform. They don't have to make sure they jump through certain hoops in order for them to get what I have given to them. Their inheritance is given to them by my life. And all they have to do is accept it. This marriage union with God is the inheritance we have because God himself made flesh The son of God, Jesus, gave his life. And in his life being given, now the inheritance is freely ours. Would you accept it? 
And I don't just mean, would you pray a prayer one time? Would you come to an altar at the end of a church service and have someone pray over you? I don't just mean, would you raise your hand when we ask, does anybody in here want to be saved? I'm not talking about rituals. I mean, when you leave this place and you're faced with the kings of this earth, you're faced with the powers and the principalities and the rulers of this world, when you're faced with your neighbors and your coworkers and the media and all these other things telling you all these other stories that you need to be cleansed from, when you're faced with the own wickedness of your own heart even, would you accept the fact that you've already been made clean by the blood of Jesus in those moments day to day? Would you remind yourself of that truth? Would you turn your heart back to him? Jesus, you have done everything that is needed for me to be close to God by washing me with your blood, by giving me an inheritance through your life given. May I trust that. May I believe that. Help me. I know I messed up earlier. Would you help me now? I know yesterday looked bad. Would you be with me today? And listen, he's patient and he's kind and he's loving and he will continue to walk with you as long as you are continuing to turn to him. Would you accept that truth daily, moment by moment? Here's the other good news. The reason that blood doesn't have to be spilled again for you and you don't have to go through those weird rituals of covering yourself with it is because the one who spilled his blood did not stay dead. The one who gave his life so that you can have that inheritance beat death. The life giver who gave his life and entered death was able to give life again to his very own body. And Jesus, in that body that he walked in, the human flesh and blood and bone body that has been pierced, he walks in that same body forever now so that he could experience and enjoy the inheritance with us. This is a God who gives life and a God who loves to share it with you and I. And so forever, his blood has already covered us and forever, his life gets to be with us and we get to be with him. And so Revelation, what we just read, it ends with, come Lord Jesus, come. And it ends with a picture of Jesus sharing a meal, a feast with us eternally, a party celebration. Who doesn't like parties, right? We started this conversation this morning with a story of walking in and seeing blood on the floor. We, we started it with something very wrong, didn't we? But God is at work to restore what is wrong and make it right. And so it ends with a celebration, a party, a feast, rejoicing, in living forever. No more blood will ever be shed when Jesus returns and makes all things right. And we are praying and longing for that day to come quickly. Would you pray that with me?